I'm preaching this morning from the fifth chapter of Ephesians. I'm beginning at verse 21, and I'll read through part of chapter 6. I'd like for you to turn to that passage. As a matter of fact, I'll be preaching for the next four services, counting today, on the theme of the home. I want to preach tonight on the subject, or the under the title, Is It Better Not to Marry? And I've taken a little survey. I want to tell you about it. I have, I've taken a survey and I've asked that question, is it better not to marry? And I'm going to announce the results with names uh, tonight. And I think that you'd uh, want to hear that result. Some of you I've questioned. You might want to prepared, be prepared tonight for um, uh, some controversy. I'm just kidding, but I hope you'll come, and we're going to talk about, is it better not to marry, but today on the home. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church he himself being the Savior of the body. But, just as, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, and there's the clue as to what it means to love your wife as your own body, to nourish it and to cherish it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are the members of his body, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself. And let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Children, young people, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long upon the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. A teenage boy was riding his motorbike hurriedly up the mountain, winding mountain highway to his parents' vacation cottage. He was late for supper, and he knew his parents would be concerned about him. 
In the cottage at the top of the mountain, his parents indeed were concerned about the tardiness of their son. It was a strange place, and they could imagine that all kinds of things might have happened. He was never late. And so the father got in the family automobile and started down the highway to see if he could find his son. And they came together on one of those hairpin curves in that mountain road. And the result of the violent collision left the boy dead and his father to grieve away the rest of his life. I think it is more than just the account of a tragic accident. I think it might be the parable of the modern home. On the one hand, our parents who are desperately trying to reach out across that gap that separates them from their children to communicate with them. And on the other hand, our young people and children who are trying desperately to find some way to communicate with their parents. On the one hand is a husband who is trying desperately to make some kind of, some kind of reconciliation with the wife. There's an estrangement there. And on the other hand is the wife who desperately wants to find her husband. And the result has been the most violent collision in the history of the human race. Can you imagine the surprise of that family on, Easter, on Mother's Day 1981? when they drove back from church to the front of where their house used to be and found that it was gone. And in its place was this Florida phenomenon, this thing called a sinkhole, a thousand feet wide and 125 feet deep. And down in the bottom of that was their home. They had left to go to church, come back to find that their home was gone. And that thing began to spread until it included a, a, a roadway and a business and other houses and four luxury cars were lost in the bottom of that thing. And a man with irrepressible logic got a helicopter to try to see if he could fish his car out from the bottom of that sinkhole. And he got a long cable in that helicopter and he fished around in the bottom of that sinkhole trying to salvage his car. And John Drakeford in his marvelous new book talks about this sinkhole phenomenon and parallels it to what is happening to the modern home. What is happening to the family, to marriage? We go in one day and it's just gone. Now I know that water never rises above the, rises higher than the level of its source. And so you always find the water tower in the top, in the highest extremity of the city. And the nation and the church does not rise higher than the level of its source, which is the home. And so I want to talk about something this morning that is more vital than anything perhaps you've heard this week. I want to take three little cliches and I just want to use them as kind of hangers on which to hang some ideas so that you can remember them. The first cliche is, that, is this, there's no place like home. Secondly, charity or love begins at home. You've heard this all the time and at the end. I want to come to the last cliche, it's this, show me the way to go home. There's no place like home. The home has been heralded as the great bulwark of American society, the answer to all of our problems and the cure to all of our ills. 
The home has been exalted in our poetry and in our praise, in our poetry and our prose. But the truth of the matter is marriage and the family and the home is being neglected. It's kind of being treated like an old grandfather clock, you know. We just kind of shoved it over in the corner, wound it up, uh, wound it up and expected it to go on click, ticking, go on running without any care or any attention. And the truth of the matter is the family, the home, the marriage as we have always known it is on its way out. Lyle Schaller, in a frightening little book called The Impact of the Future, says, quote, An impressive array of evidence can now be presented to support the contention that the family, as we have always known it, is being subjected to unprecedented changes that will drastically alter its form and function in the future. And he describes those changes that we're experiencing or seeing in the home. One of them is mobilization. We're a, we're a people on the move. Two generations ago, a person would have been born, the doctor who brought him into the world would probably care for him for most of his life. And he would live in the same little community and he'd be buried in the, in the, in the cemetery next to the little church. But no longer is that true. We have people on the move so that one half of every person that lives in America today will live only, will have lived only five years in his present location. The second change that you and I are witnessing that is drastically altering the form and function of the family according to Lyle Schaller is what he calls emancipation. The emancipation of the female, the woman. Now I'm not dumb enough to get into an argument this morning about the uh, women's lib. But I think we'll all agree that with the liberation of the, of, 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 of the woman, there has come some drastic alterations and changes in the family. The third change, he says, that is drastically altering the form and function of the family is what he calls liberalization, the changing of values and standards. Just a while back, a woman on the eastern seaboard carried a child in her womb for nine months. She was artificially inseminated. And at the end of that nine months, she received a check for $10,000 and she turned that baby over to its mother and its father. And that's just, that story is just one of the many stories that reflects the liberalization, the changings of mores and standards that is that is threatening, that is changing the form and function of the family. There's no place like home. Is that really true or is that just a cliche? Well, there's no place like home with regard to education. Now, I spent most of my young adulthood in school and I'm not here to, to, to down or to, to uh, uh, deprecate education. I mean, not in a university, not in a university town would a preacher be so ignorant to get up and down education. But I am going to say this morning that the best place, the best institution for teaching and training is the home. There is, an Israel, there is a proverb that comes out of ancient Israel, and it's this, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth 
have been set on edge. Now what that proverb means is not that, that, that God is just going to put a curse on the children, to, to curse them because of the sins of their father, nor does it mean that there's going to be this unholy curse that's passed down through the bloodline, but it does mean that the environment in which the children are raised will have an in, inescapable impact upon their character. It does mean that teaching and training begins, learning begins in the home, not from indoctrination, not from instruction, but from illustration. Let, let me ask you as I ask myself a question, parents. What lessons are our children learning because of our example? You've heard it before. A child learns what he lives. If a child lives with criticism, he learns to condemn. If a child lives with hostility, he learns to fight. If a child lives with fear, he learns to be apprehensive. If a child lives with pity, he learns to feel sorry for himself. If a child lives with jealousy, he learns to feel guilty. If a child lives with encouragement, he learns to be confident. If a child lives with tolerance, he learns to be patient. If a child lives with acceptance, he learns to love. If a child lives with honesty, he learns what truth is. If a child lives with friendliness, he learns that the world is a nice place to live. He learns what he lives. I was reading the other day... Uh, a survey, a, a, a kind of an interesting statement put out by the National Alcoholic and uh, Alcoholism and Alcoholic Abuse. And this National Institute says that children who grow up with alcoholic parents are more likely to be alcoholics. You'd think it'd be ex exactly the opposite, wouldn't you? That they'd see this problem of alcoholism in the home and they'd determined that they'd never be an alcoholic. The exact opposite is true. Rather than that being uh, a lesson that they are to, that they would be motivated never to be like, it becomes an example to imitate. And according to Strauss and Giles, a child who has suffered child abuse is four times more likely to be a child abuser than one who is not. Rather than that being a lesson that would motivate him to be different, it becomes an example that he imitates. For we live, we learn what we live. There's no place like home with regard to education. There's no place like home with regard to recreation. You having any fun in your family? I'll tell you what's frightening to me. I just want to bear my soul just a little. What's frightening to me is to see how bored we are as a family. I mean, you go down Central Expressway, head into Dallas on Friday afternoon. I mean, it's bumper to bumper. Cars coming out of the city, headed to the country. Just can't wait till the weekend so they can get out of the house to have some fun. 
When I was traveling in the Northwest, those preachers out there lament the fact that in the recreation season in the Northwest, you, can't hard, you can hardly have church because people leave home to go to the recreation places to have some fun. And I listen to the kids on, Saturday, on Sunday morning sometime, and I'll hear them say, what'd you do last night? Oh, man, you talk about boring. I stayed at home. You having any fun as a family? Can you turn off that television long enough to have some fun, to be creative at it? Now, I don't have too much in my childhood because, uh, you know, my, my parents were not wealthy. Farmers, they didn't have a whole lot. And, and, but I have some marvelous memories today, and I just uh, take the liberty to express one of them. One of the fondest memories I have of my childhood are those cold winter days on in a little farmhouse when all of our family would get together, play dominoes, or pick up sticks. I heard C.A. Roberts tell that one summer he decided to take his family on a vacation to California. He lived in Florida. He's going to sunny California, have some fun. He said, we loaded up our car. I got $1,000 worth of traveler's checks and headed to California. He said, we had a great time, I thought. He said, we went to Disneyland, to the Dodgers game. We went to the, we went to the uh, beach. He said, we did everything out there. He said, we got back home and school started. And my middle school daughter had to write an essay on what she enjoyed most, most about the summer vacation. And this is what she said. The thing I enjoyed most about our summer vacation were the family fun games we played in the car on the way to California and back. C.A. Roberts said, man, if I'd have known that, I'd just parked in the driveway, you know, loaded, loaded, the, uh, lo loaded the baggage on top of the car and said, we'd have got a picnic lunch and we just sat in the driveway and played those fun games. Well, maybe he should have known that. Are you having any fun as a family? There's no place like home. I mean, I mean, parents, give your children some memories of some fun times. Don't send them off to the recreation places for the fun. There's no place like home with regard to religious instruction. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking what I've always thought. The church is the place to, get, to train our children in the things of God. And we feel real confident this morning. We feel real good if we're uh, faithful enough to take our children to church so the preacher and the Sunday school teachers can teach them the things of God. Wrong again. You know, and I have, I have sensed, maybe I'm just a little paranoid, but I have sensed sometime when a, when a young person or a teenager goes, goes astray, I have sensed some hostility from that teenager's parents as though they were blaming me. And I've had some say to me, hey, preacher, you neglected my child and he went, he went astray. Let me tell you something. There's nobody that wants to see young people and children grow up in the nurture and admonition, admonition of the Lord more than the, than the staff, the volunteer staff or the paid staff of the church. We long to see that happen and it breaks our heart when it doesn't. But let me tell you what, we're not the ones to do that. We're just to affirm what you're doing in the home. We don't have them long enough. We're not prepared to do that. If you're not doing it in the home, it'll never get done. 
done. And as a matter of fact, that's not our responsibility in the first place to teach them, to be the only ones who teach them. Because that admonition and that instruction is given to the parents, primarily the father. He says, fathers, train up your children in the way they should go. R.A. Torrey was a young man. He decided he was going to leave home and become a prodigal. Just before he left, he's packing his bags. His mother came in. She said, R.A., when you get out in that world where you're going, she said, I want you to take my Bible. And when you get out in that world where you're going and it gets so dark you can't see, the time gets so rough you can't stand it, if you'll call on your mother's God, you'll get help. And R.A. Torrey kind of snuffed at that. He was a rebel. You know him now as one of the great Baptists of the first part of this century. But he put that Bible in his suitcase and he got out there in that world and sure enough it got rough. And one day when he had no answers to his questions, no solutions for his problems, he decided he'd kill himself. And so he went down, he bought a gun he got back in his room and started to do that. He remembered what his mother said. He dug that Bible out. And he said, Oh God of my mother, wherever you are, whatever you are, the time is so tough I can't make it. And the night is so dark I can't see my way out. But oh God of my mother, I'm calling on you for help. And he got help. Now the question I want to ask you fathers this morning is when that son of yours gets out into that world, that strange world of education or occupation, and the time gets so rough he can't stand it, can he call on his father's God and get help? And the question I want to ask you mothers is this. When that daughter of yours gets out into that strange new land of education or occupation and it gets so dark she cannot see the way out, can she call on her mother's God and get help? There's no place like home for religious instruction. Second cliche, love begins at home. Charity, you, you've heard that, haven't you? Charity begins at home. Ask a guy to give to missions. He said, well, I believe you need to take care of your home base. Love begins at home. Well, that's true. Love began in the home of God. Watch this. Love began in his great heart, and that love moved him. And in that home, wherever it is, where God dwells, he refers to it as his home. That love was, was a reality. It is his nature to love. And so he decided he would demonstrate to the world his love. So what did he do? He took a gift of love and put it where? He put it in a home. Isn't it amazing? That when God wanted to show us what He was like, when He wanted to show us the most characteristic thing about His nature, He descended the stairways of heaven with a baby on His arms and He walked into a home and He put that gift of love there. And He said, you want to know what it means to love? Here I show you that love. Love begins at home. Love begins at home. Now He says, husbands, love your wives 
as Christ loved the church. That means sacrificially. I have had some guys say to me, I love my wife enough I'd be willing to die for her. I say, well, Christ wasn't willing to die for her. He did. He said, love your wives as you love your own bodies. That means that you are to be sensitive to their hurts and sensitive to their, their needs to be as sensitive to them as you are to yourself, to nourish and to cherish her. Love your wives, he says. Husbands, love your wives. And then he says to the wife, and somebody noted it, uh, maybe mentioned this tonight, that he tells the men to love their wives four times, as many times as he tells the wife to love her husband, because it may be a little more difficult for the husband to love to express love. Then he says to the wife, be submissive to your husband as unto the Lord. That is an, an, an appropriation to him. The husband is to be the lover and the leader. If he's the leader and not the lover, he's dominant. If he's the lover and not the leader, he's a sentimentalist. And as he leads and as he loves, that wife responds to him in submission and appropriation. If there is a friend that a husband has in the world, it ought to be his wife. If there's somebody who, who is going to be there to support that man, it ought to be his wife. I mean, he ought to be able to come home as to a sanctuary and come into his house and know that his wife is going to dust him off and prop him up and give him encouragement. Let me suggest something. I think I may have done this before, but hadn't worked. In the morning, in the morning when that alarm clock rings, I'm, I'm just talking to the wives now. In the morning when that alarm clock rings, reach over there in that jar, you know, over there on the dresser in that jar where you keep your face and, 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 uh, and, and put on your face, you know, and, and, and get up and, you know, just leave him there, you know, in the bed for a while and go in there and start frying that bacon and put you on a little Chanel number no. five, just kind of splash it on. And, 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 and when that aroma of frying bacon and Chanel number no. five kind of wafts its way into the bedroom, he, he'll, he'll get up. And as he makes his way, staggers over to the kitchen table, you know, have everything. And when he starts out the door, just kind of give him a little nudge and say, go get him, tiger. <laughs> and and I, I, I promise you, he'll conquer the world. And parents love your children. And you say, what kind of a preacher would have to tell parents to love their children? Oh, I know that most parents love their children. And I know that parental love is spontaneous to a certain degree. And maybe it's not that we need to be told to love our children. Maybe we just need to know how to express our love. I mean, how do you really express your love to your children? I mean, how do you? Well, you do it with words in the first place. How long has it been since you've put your arm around him or her and said, son, daughter, I love you? You do it, you do it with your time. If you're running short on time, what goes first? Well, your family, doesn't it? Isn't that a shame? With time. Now, oh, three things about that. Whatever you do with giving time to your children to express your love, I know three things about it. Number one is I know that if you love your children, you're going to spend time with them. I know secondly 
that if you have any time for your children, you're going to have to prepare for it or plan for it. And I know thirdly, it doesn't matter the quantity so much of the time you spend with them, but the quality. And a third way that you can express your love to your children is by listening to them. Let me tell you something that happens in these small groups that meet like we had last weekend on Disciple Now Weekend. You know what young people are saying? They're saying, I can't talk to my parents. They won't listen to me. They're good at lecturing, but they're not good at listening. One way to express your love is to listen to them and to hear the cries that come between the lines. And the fourth thing you can do to express your love to your children is to praise them. How long has it been since you've not criticized them, but praised them for the good they do? Now here it is. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother that you, it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now hear me now. You can just turn me off for a second. Don't turn me off completely. Uh, parents, I want to say a word about that admonition that it may be well with thee. You know what that says? It says that if you don't obey your parents for what they are, the authority where, that God has placed in your life. And if you don't honor them for who they are, your parents, then you may die. What it says is that things are not going to go well if a person doesn't honor his parents and obey them. One last cliche, and there's so much to say here. So little time to do it. The third cliche is, show me the way to go home. You know when I hear that cliche, you know what I think about? I, I, my, my mental image of that is a, a, a father, a husband on his knees saying to God, God, show me how to be a good parent. Show me how to go home. Lord, show me how to be a good husband. Lord, if I'm not successful in this, I'm not successful in anything. Two guys were talking one day, and they, they said, how do you define success? Well, one guy, or three guys, rather, one said, well, I think it's, Success is when you, you, know, you get invited to the White House and get an audience with the president. That's what I'd call successful. Second guy, no, he said, no, I don't think so. He said, my idea of success would be to be invited to the White House with, for an audience with the president and the hotline, the red telephone ring, but he'd be so engrossed in your conversation he wouldn't even answer it. That would be I'd call success. The third said, no, I'll tell you what I do, how I define success is to be invited to the White House with an audience with the president and the red telephone ring, and he'd answer it and say, it's for you. Now that's success. <laughs> how do you define success? How do, you, how do you define it? Listen carefully. Public achievement cannot be measured as true success unless it is matched 
by a personal relationship of peace and love within the family. Now I need to tell you what that means. It means that you can make it to the top in your profession, but if you don't have peace and love in your family, you failed. I listened to a guy pour out his heart not long ago. And this father told about a crisis that went on in his life. He almost lost his son. Not in death, but in rebellion. And he said, I couldn't stand it. He said, my heart broke. He said, I thought I was going to die. He said, I watched as my son was leaving like the prodigal, moving away from me and everything I taught him, moving away from my home and taking off and leaving me and God. He said, I thought I'd die. And he said, I went to my knees, driven there out of desperation. And he said, I had this burden on my hand concerning my son. And he said, I just turned my hands upside down like Galloway talks about in his book. He said, Lord, I can't stand this burden any longer. I want you to help me. Show me how to be a father. He said, I learned two things out of that experience. The first thing I learned was that it doesn't matter how successful you are in life. If you lose your children, it's not worth it. He said, I was scratching and clawing and making my way to the top in my profession and I was spending all my time and my business and my work. And he said, I discovered, I realized in the desperation of that, he said, I realized that that if you you succeed in that, but if you've failed your family, your, your wife, your children, it doesn't matter what you succeed in the world. Can you say amen to that? He said, the second thing I learned out of that experience was that you got to have some outside help to be a parent. And I can say amen to both those things. You got to have some outside help. You can't do it alone. You got to have somebody to show you how to go home. You got to have some intervention from a higher power. You got to have some, some assistance from a divine Father. You've got to have some help from somebody. And if you're trying to be a husband or a wife or a parent and you're not walking with God, you're not going to make it the way it ought to be made. Something happened to me when I was a sophomore in seminary, second year in seminary. Why did I say sophomore? Second year in seminary, and I'll never forget. I'm telling you what, I think of it every day, and that's a true story. I started to preach a a revival in southeast Dallas for a guy I met out in West Texas. He'd come to a revival. I was preaching out there. asked me to come preach a revival for him down southeast Dallas. There's not even a... If you go from uh, out of Dallas toward Houston, you'll cross right over where that church was. There's nothing there now, but highway and industrial development. But there was a, there was a, 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 there was a, a houses and people lived there then. And, and, and I went down there to preach that revival in that little church. I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime. Brother, I, I grew up on a West Texas farm. I've been to goat roping 
few county fairs, but I've never seen anything like what went on in that church. It was unbelievable. I mean, gangs of kids would come and disrupt the services. It was wild. It's down in the part of southeast Dallas at that time that, that you didn't go down in there alone. Before I went to preach that revival, I remember picking up the Fort Worth Star-Telegram on the front page had a picture of this mangled automobile and this girl showed her picture there, was killed in this car wreck. Now this is the story about that girl. She was a, she was a student in one of the high schools in Dallas. It was during the time of the State Fair of Texas and two guys and this girl played hooky from school and they, they, they went out south of Dallas to the, count, to the State Fair and then they were headed out toward DeSoto at a high speed in that sports car and they turned that car over and killed that girl. Didn't even hurt the boys. When I got to that revival, as God would have it, that girl lived next door to the church when she was living. I mean, not down the street. I mean, like, here, here's the church and, and where the Boston property, Boston property used to be, like that. She lived next door to the church. And her father was an alcoholic and her stepmother was an alcoholic. And we made an appointment to, to visit them and we got there, at, he was a welder, we got there after he got off work and he was eating supper and she had been drinking all day and never one time did she ever look at us. We walked in, sat down at the table with him. He never stopped eating, she never looked up. We just sat there talking. We did most of the talking. And he, he was eating. It looked like he hadn't eaten for a month. I mean, he was hungry. He's, I can tell you what he was eating. I can see it. It was like yesterday. He's eating cornbread, fish sticks, and English peas. And he had a big old tin can of iced tea. Just a filthy little old house. And boy, he was cramming it in, eating it up. And then he started talking. And when he started talking... Everybody listened. I mean, his voice got louder. And this is what he said. You guys coming over here to talk to me about God? He said, what kind of a God is it that let my daughter die in the prime of her life? He crammed another bite in his mouth. He said, what kind of a God is it that would take an innocent child like that and these two boys in their sports car, they didn't even get a scratch. He said, what kind of God is that? And he crammed another bite in his mouth. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He said, I'm going to sue those boys for everything they got. It's just not fair that my daughter's in a grave and they're out running around somewhere. And he crammed another bite in his mouth. And when it was obvious that we were not going to do a whole lot with that man, we got up to leave and he followed us to the door. And when I started out the door, he got me by the hand. Now he is a welder, and he had a grip like it broke my hand. And I could tell it was eating him alive. He looked me right in the eye and said, do you think God blames me for this? Now I'm speaking to every father 
And so that means me. Gentlemen, one day we're going to answer to God for our children. And I'm speaking to every mother. One day we're going to answer to God for our children. And I'm speaking to every child. One day you're going to answer to God for the way you've been to your parents. And we ought to all be on our knees and on our faces saying, show me the way to go home. Would you pray with me? Father, in this very room there is the Savior of the world in this very room there is enough love for everybody for every child for every person in the world in this very room there is enough potential to change the world if we begin at the right place. And I pray for every father, every mother, every child in this very room. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, I pray.